PJ Glasser alongside Joe Malfa. It is episode 39 of the Glasser Joe podcast. PJ, we are really burning through the sports calendar. Plenty of college basketball to talk coming up because calendar turns to March by the time we get to our next episode. But first, we've got our guest for this week, Grant Paulson of the Grant and Danny Show on 106.7 The Fan in the D.C. area. Talking Nats, talking Caps, talking NL East, talking the NHL's East Division. Plenty in the interview coming up right now. Pleased to be joined this week by radio host of the Grant and Danny Show on 106.7 The Fan, Grant Paulson. Grant, I know a good chunk of your time is, is devoted to the show, so thanks for taking some time to stop by and talk some more with us today instead. So how, how are you and the family doing? Doing very well. Appreciate you guys having me. What's going on? Just much yet. Thanks for coming on. Where we're at and getting, you know, thinking of where we were last year at this time, not knowing we were three weeks away from sports stopping and now having all the sports at once again. It's it's a lot of fun. And we got a lot to get to with you, but we want to start with spring training because we know you, you know, we see the caps and that stuff behind you. Uh, we want to start with what the Nats did this offseason. They did a lot of things that kind of went under the radar. Uh, so of the things they did, which moves did you like, not like? any moves you wish they made that they didn't how would you evaluate the offseason they had yeah I guess start with what I really liked I love the addition of Brad Hand in their bullpen I think bringing in one of the better lefty relievers in the sport particularly in an offseason in which you lose Sean Doolittle was pertinent they had to get a left-handed reliever and to get the guy that's probably statistically been the best southpaw reliever in the game since he became a full-time reliever in 2016 I was really happy with that I thought that was vital in the NL East where you've got so many tough lefties in the division. You know, everyone now wants to talk about whether or not he'll be the closer or, you know, the setup man, or I don't know that it matters. I, I think bullpenning anymore is somewhat positionless and role-less, not completely. Uh, there are a lot of old school managers and thinkers in baseball still, but you know, I like the idea of, of kind of fireman relievers, right? Where you come in and in a spot against, a, you know, an opponent that you match up well against. And I think Davey's going to use Brad Hand in a way where he's going to face tough lefties, seventh, eighth, ninth inning, you know, and they'll plan for a part of the lineup with him and with Rainey and in the back of the bullpen with Hudson. So I liked that a lot. I like the upside of Josh Bell a ton. This is a guy that hit 37 homers and, and played at an all-star level in his last full season before the, the weird 2020 pandemic stricken year. Um, I, that hasn't been the norm for him in his career. That That's kind of the, the best case scenario, but I, I think that he brings power and some protection in the lineup for Juan Soto in the same way that I think Kyle Schwarber brings a little bit of thump. I'm not a huge Schwarber guy because I think he's pretty limited to, to the home run offensively, a lot of swings and misses, low batting average, not a great defender, but um, I think those guys help lengthen their lineup and at least provide a little bit of support for Soto. And, and then to, to kind of round out the answer with things I wish they would have done, um, I wanted them to make a huge splash. You know, I always want to spend the learner's money for them. Of course. <laughs> no problem uh, throwing someone else's money out there. And I don't have a problem going over the luxury tax threshold. They seem to not like doing that, but I'm not the one that's got to stroke the, the bill for the taxes after. But I was hoping that they would have been a player for JT Romuto or an outfielder, frankly. I wanted Michael Brantley. I would have been okay and excited about George Springer, who was kind of my secondary option in the outfield. Uh, I thought he would have been an awesome pickup. I know it sounds crazy, but even Trevor Bauer. I mean, you're in your last year of, of Max's contract. Um, he may not be here next year. Strauss is typically a hit or miss option as far as health. Like this rotation is going to look a lot different this time of year from now, especially if Corbin doesn't 
get it together after this past season where he struggled. So one of those big fish I would have liked to reeled in, but again, it's easy for me to spend their money. They weren't willing to do that. You just got to defer it all like they like to do. <laughs> yeah. A couple hundred million dollar contract and defer about a buck 90. Exactly. And so Grant, the Nats made some moves, but the Dodgers did too. They brought in Trevor Bauer. As you look at the landscape of the National League, how close do you think the gap is between the Dodgers and the other teams in the NL, or are they pretty far out in front? They're definitely the favorites, right? There's no doubt in my mind, PJ. They're like the they're the one seed, and then we kind of have a conversation of who's next. Right. I think the Braves are being slept on. I really do. Uh, you look at some of the projections with Pakoda and some of the the nerdy numbers that I like. I mean, there's some of these algorithms that have them in the low 80s and wins, and I don't see that. This is a, a three-time defending NL East champion that I think had a pretty strong offseason. They brought Marcelo Zuna back, which was pertinent. They brought in Morton and Smiley to a rotation with really good young pitching. I think what you saw from Ian Anderson was legit. I think what you've seen from uh, Max Freed, the former Harvard-Westlake arm with Lucas Giolito, is, is who he is. And I believe that uh, when they get Mike Soroka back, he's going to pitch like an all-star front of the rotation arm again. So from a Nats perspective, I worry about Atlanta. Uh, San Diego's authentic. I mean, that team's not going anywhere. You know, forget for a second that I can't believe that, uh, you know, they were able to get Fernando Tatis Jr. to sign that contract. Yeah. Leaving a lot of money on the, on the table, as crazy as that sounds. But the Padres, what they did in that rotation, like when Clevenger got hurt, I thought, well, damn, you know, the Padres are going to be in a little bit of trouble, but then they go get Darvish and, and they make these moves in the rotation where they're bringing in arms and you're thinking Snell and with that group in that ballpark, I like them a lot. I think that's probably my top trio. And then my, my one caveat would be I'm normally a see it to believe it guy, like going back to like miracle on 34th street, like philosophy. <laughs> right. But the Mets, man, I, I think, they're off. I normally do not buy into off season hype. And if you make moves that suddenly you're this great team, I really think the Mets are going to be very good if, if their rotation stays healthy. So that would be the top pantheon for me in the national league. Then there's probably a little bit of a gap. And then I would say it's teams like the Nats and probably, you know, the, the, you know, maybe the, the front runner in the NL central, I'll say the Cardinals after they got Nolan Arenado, like those types of teams. The National League is going to be pretty good this year. Joe and I have been talking. We kind of think the AL and NL flip-flopped from last year to yes, this year, sure. where it's kind of like the Yankees and everybody else in the AL. And then the NL, uh, there's some pretty good teams out there. Yeah. Um, no I'm glad you brought up Tatis, Grant, because I wanted to talk to you about that. He got that 14-year 340 deal. And I go on Twitter after that happens, and all of Nat's Twitter is just freaking out about what it's going to take to keep Soto in D.C. So as somebody who has the pulse of the DMV talking on the radio every day, two-part question for you. Do you think Soto gets a deal north of about $400 million? And do you think the Padres started a trend that we might start seeing in baseball where these highly touted prospects, guys that just – hit right away do you think that teams that are lower market teams do you think they just sign these dudes to big deals because they can't afford to lose them so a couple things i think it's a good question number one i'm not sure they started the trend right because this has been happening for a little while if you think about it like trying to think of the guy um top of my head it might have been scott kingery from the phillies that i'm thinking of okay um is it didn't he sign his extension before he ever debuted in the big leagues? 
pretty sure we've seen a couple of it players was early. The guy from the White Sox as well. I'm like, um, White Sox signed someone like that, and then now the Braves. Uh, Magical, I think, did one. Was, yeah, and then Nick, and the Braves got got. Um, well, they got both of their guys. Deal. Yes, yeah. Acuna and Albie's locked up. So there's a couple things to think about here. So number one, I do think this has been if you want to call it a trend or an idea or a paradigm for these teams, it makes a lot of sense. If you can get the player to sign ahead of arbitration years being exhausted in free agency, then it, of course, it's always going to be team friendly to do that. Right. Right. Have to have the willing dance partner though. And if you notice the guys that do this are not represented by Scott Boris, who is the, the Juan Soto's agent. Now that's not to say that Boris would never do that. I mean, he works for the player. So if the player demanded to to get a deal done, I'm sure he would do that. Um, I understand why agents want to do it. You know, the agent for Fernando Tatis is now going to make whatever percent he's guaranteed of that contract over the next 14 years. He's got that money coming in. And if Tatis fires him tomorrow, he gets all that cash from the player perspective though. And this is where we get into Soto. If you are elite which Tatis is, Soto is, then there isn't a reason to do it financially. You know, not to go completely like year to year, Dak Prescott, Kirk Cousins style here, but people look at that as greedy or they look at that as like anti-team. It's just knowing your value. This is a market. I mean, in your job, if you're worth X amount of dollars, you should want X amount of dollars. And the market says that Fernando Tatis over the years that he just signed for is worth way more than he just signed for. So to answer your question on Soto and 400 million, undoubtedly, this locks him in at that. Now, what's interesting is I did this math, actually. If Soto, just for the next four seasons, plays the arbitration game, and because uh, of him being a Boris guy, I'm expecting that he will. He's not going to sign ahead of free agency conservatively and this is being like team friendly i'm going to slot that at 50 to 55 million dollars for soto he's making 8 million this year that jumps up to 12 it's going to jump up to 15 to 20 you do all that math yeah. conservatively that's 4 years and 50 million going into free agency at that point he's still only 26 and that's the thing about tatis signing this deal it was one thing when you are Robbie Cano or your uh, Al Pujol, so these guys, and you're 29 or 30 years old, mm-hmm. and now you're, you're signing your contract. These dudes that graduate at 21, you know, they are 20 in their cases. They're 26 when they're getting their bite at the apple. So you might even get two contracts. But Soto at that time, if he signs these new last couple of year trend deals of like 12 or 13 years, the current annual average value right now at the top of the market is about 37 mil. Trout makes like 36 in a hook. I think um, Rendon makes about 36 mil. So that's current. Now, every few years, baseball becomes worth a few billion more dollars and that resets itself and that number goes up. So you, I could easily guess that it's going to be around 40 million per year or a little bit more for a position player in four years. But if we're just using the current numbers of 37 mil per year times 12, that's like $444 million for Juan Soto, just that plus the 50 million he's already earned is close to 500 mil. And again, I feel like I'm being conservative here. And we got a guy who just signed for 340 mil who plays shortstop (laughs) and Soto plays right field and was a left fielder until a couple minutes ago. Shortstop's the most valuable position in the game. If you hit like Soto, which he has, and you play shortstop, 
you should be making Bezos money. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I guess I kind of sound more like an agent or like a, like Boris here than certainly someone who cares about the team. But I'm trying to look at this from both perspectives. From the team standpoint, amazing. But I'll tell you this. If I was a Nats fan and Soto signed that deal this week, I'd be dancing in the street. I'd be 100%. buying pints for everybody at the bar. Like, if you're a Padres fan, fellas, you got this dude till you're – if you're our age, like, I don't know how old you guys are. I'm 32. Till you're near 46. Like, I'm almost 50 years old watching Juan Soto <laughs> play for the Nats. It's the best thing in the world. It's, so it's not time to sign him. It's, it's, it's great that you bring that up because when he signed that 14-year deal, I'm 23, and I'm yeah. like – I'm going to be 37 with kids in a mortgage by the time his contract is up, which is absurd to think about. But, hey, I mean, you get that guaranteed money. That's why you always see everywhere. If you got a kid who's an athlete, teach him to play baseball. That's, that's, that's all you got to do. And, he, and if, if you want to be specific, teach him to be a lefty specialist. Like, look at Oliver Perez still taking many bites of the apple in, in a league. Yeah, he'll get Adam one. Adam Caleric. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But the um, one thing I'll say, because there are people probably watching that are like, well, this is all from the player perspective, and that's true. I guess there is a little bit of a risk, right? But I, I don't know exactly how it works in terms of, like, the insurance that, that, that the teams get in those these deals or what have you. I mean, there is a, a chance you could say that, well, Tatis is going to fall off. Like, if you're some random dude who had the, the year that he just had, okay, fine. Maybe you know that you outkicked your coverage. You're not actually that good. This is a, a top prospect in the game that everyone for years has said is going to be one of the next great players. There's no, we're not expecting some massive drop off. So that's what the people say, get the money while you can. Don't, don't risk it. What happens if you get injured? Okay. Then you still made $50 million over four years and you're probably set for life, but you might as well swing for the fences. Like when you, you take out, cause he's in California, the taxes, you take out the fact that uh, he's paying his agent, as I said. I'm pretty sure I read that he had. Um, yeah, he owes money to people who invested in him or something. Yeah, like yeah. Are are you guys familiar with uh, what is it called? Big League Advance. Do you guys know about that? So, mm-hmm. Big League Advance is is this? Um, it's actually a really smart idea, I think. But it's a guy that basically, as you said, invest in these players early. Michael Swimmer used to play, who um, and then they pay him back on the back end, essentially. So like you got to pay that. So with, when all that's done, I'm, you know, what is he making now? This sounds crazy for a guy who's like, you know, scratching money together to go, to go eat dinner with, with his wife. But like, it, you know, it, it's not what we think it is. And my point is maybe just go get the most you can while you can, because you're one of the best on the planet at playing in an industry that's worth $9 billion or whatever it is. And the right. thing with the learners now, the track record of, um, will they let him get to free agency a la Harper and, and something like that, in which case there's going to be plenty of bidders for him. So a lot to watch there, but before we, uh, excuse me, now getting out of baseball and to hockey, because that's the season we are in. um, Do you think that the caps have a concern so far with the age of the team and the back-to-backs and going forward? Or do you think that, it's something that will benefit them because they have that experience and we're going to blink and it's already in crunch time where that experience comes into play. So I think it could work both ways. I think it probably will throughout the season. You've seen that where they're pretty good, right? They're near the top of the Eastern division, but they're not seemingly ever able to string 60 minute games together. And I think that might be how this goes. Um, They're, they're way too talented and they have way too much skill to not play competitive hockey and to not get points. But 
I also wonder if the rigors of this schedule, as you said, some of the, the fact that you're going back to back with the same team or particularly when it gets all jumbled up. I was talking recently to John Carlson about this and, and I was saying what a cool thing it was that they got this break when they were down a bunch of players with the COVID protocol because they didn't have to play in, in three consecutive games. They got a week off. And he said, well, the flip side of that is we might get a bunch of games stacked up at the end of the season, and that's not ideal. So I, I think the answer to your question is kind of both. I, I think you, know, you, you bring up what is good, what is bad for this group about this schedule. Uh, overall, my feel on them right now is that they're in good shape. Uh, I, I don't love that you know, they have three games in hand over a couple of the teams they're competitive with in the division. Having said that, uh, they, their upside is awesome. Like when they play a great period of hockey, to me, it looks better than some of what we saw last season when they were playing good hockey. Uh, the, the problem is that their floor seems to have, to this point, been a little bit lower. And there's some ugly periods, too. They still take too many penalties and not you know, this season. I, I don't know that that's going away. I just kind of think that's baked in now with, with this operation and this group. Uh, you got a different coach and, and that hasn't particularly changed. Um, I like that Vitek Vanacek has is, is taken over the net. It looks like he is serviceable enough to keep them in and, and win them some games. Um, they got to get better defensively, and I think they got to get more out of Evgeny Kuznetsov and a couple of their top forwards. And if that can happen, then they're going to be right where they need to be going into the playoffs. More defensively, too, you mentioned you've been talking to Carlson. One stat that I noticed the other day, PJ and I working still – uh, freelance NBC Sports Washington. I was making the graphics, and one thing that came across as I was doing my research, Carlson's a minus 10 right now, and he hasn't finished a season with a negative plus minus since 2014. So when your big guy like that is in a hole like that as well, you got to get out of that rut. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean, that shocks me to hear that. I, I wouldn't have known that, so that's a good nugget. Um, I would say this. I mean, I'm not a huge plus minus guy as it is, right? Just analytically from a, for a couple of reasons. I think sometimes if you're on a bad team, you're going to have a bad plus minus, even if you're a great player. But it, it is semi-relevant for John Carlson. I mean, you're on the ice with a really good power play. You are on the ice with a winning team. And so it shouldn't completely be dismissed. Um, I think part of it was that, you know, early on, they're getting pairings down. Then you're jostling things in a blender because Dmitry Orlov and certain guys aren't available. So there are some explanations. Maybe they sound like excuses, you know, for a number like that. But if you look at the pace a year ago where he's leading all defensemen in points and assists and so many of these categories, and now you're back end top 10 in some of those things, you, know, you, you would, you need that production to increase. That's not just a Carly point. That's a team point. But you know, I, I think again, there, there are a few guys, like I think about Kuznetsov a lot in this regard, but when you are, you know, one of the high paid guys on a team, there's going to be just more focus on you generally. You talked about VTech a little bit, Grant. I just want to ask you about the goalie situation. We know Sam Snolf was supposed to be the guy. He got COVID, so VTech had to step in. He's done a pretty good job. Um, Sam Snolf is still the guy in the long run, but would you stick with VTech even if Sammy comes back healthy and just ride him out until you eventually make the change back to Sam Snolf? I would, yeah. I'm a big proponent of riding hot goaltenders and I don't know necessarily that Vitek Vanacek is like red hot right there's games right. where he looks great there's games where he doesn't he certainly was on a heater earlier this season but right now he is 
earned and won the right to be your starting goaltender. Not to mention, and I, I don't get to watch the games in Hershey, so I don't know what the defense is like in front of him, but it's not like Sammy's lighting the world on fire right now with the Bears when you look at some of the numbers either. So, yeah, I would get him back into the NHL and, and into the into a game, and, and I let the goalies determine it. Like, pretty consistently, if you guys have watched the last few years on NBCSW, even with Brayden Holpe, who, who had won this team a cup and was a legend and is going to be a guy who's got his sweater hanging from the rafters probably at some point. Like my point was always if Grubauer is hotter, play Grubauer. If, um, you know, more recently last year, if Sam Sonoff is rolling, play Sammy. I, I don't think you can like play favorites in, in the net. I, I don't think you can just have a guy that's this unquestioned starter. I believe in who's seeing it better. Who's more locked in, who gives you the best chance to win tonight. Who's rested those types of things. It's not to me like quarterback. You know, a lot of people I think look at goalie like you you, you can't sit a guy because it sends a message. Like we don't do that with quarterbacks after the team's down fourteen nothing. You don't just pull them out of the game to to jumpstart everything. That's not really what, what people do. Other than maybe my guy Brian Flores in Miami with Tua uh, <laughs> a couple times, who I love. I love Flores, but yeah, I, I would ride with VTech and uh, and and if Sammy gets rolling, like let's say he pitches a shutout, okay, he gets the next game, or if he strings two or three together. Let's reassess. But for now, Vanacek's their one, in my and, opinion. And this is something that's gone way back for the Caps. Like, I'm a Rangers fan, and I remember all those years when they would battle every single year in the playoffs. One year it was Varlamov. Then the next year it was Neuvert. And then the next year it was Hopi who got hot. And then the next year Hopi wasn't there. And then it was Hopi again. And then it was Grubat. Like, every single kind of chunk little era in there, a couple of years, couple of years, couple of years, where you just see them cycling through whoever happens to be hot, especially yeah. come playoff time. They've got and a track I- record for it. I think Joe, like they've been lucky because they're as good as it gets at developing goaltenders. So they've had these guys they can go to. Like there was a time where Varley and Neuwirth were vying to be the guy and Holpe was clearly the third guy in the organization. And then Holt steps forward and those guys become expendable. And they've always been able to groom these goalies. Like Phoenix Copley has had a decent run and and is a forgotten man. And Vanacek, let's we forget, was supposed to have been in, in Hershey all year, was the third guy, because they were going to have Hank Lundquist mm-hmm. and Varlamov. And, and so this is something they do pretty well, is, is have goaltending options, and they have for a long time. Now, if the Caps get into the uh, postseason, if they want to make a deep run, we know they need hot goaltending from whoever it is. Ovi and Backstrom, the Stars will need to play like Stars. But as you look at this roster, who needs to be the Kuznetsov of this team if they're going to make a deep run? We know there's going to be need to be like a Smith-Pelly guy, an Unksun hero scoring goals, but you need that Kuznetsov kind of leading the way for the team. So is it Kuzi? Does he need to get back to that his old self, or is it somebody else? Yeah, I was going to say, can I make Kuznetsov? Yeah, <laughs> Kuznetsov, Kuznetsov. So let's start with, I think Connor Sherry has emerged as a bottom six goal scoring option, right? Who could be that DSP like depth scorer right. potentially. I also think there's more offense coming from the fourth line at some point. I don't think they're ever going to score a lot of goals. Like Carl Haglund's got a couple points in, in 18 games. I mean, that, that doesn't work. And, and that's not going to be what it is. I think they're going to score more goals, get more offense, Ian and Dowden Hathaway. So I don't worry a ton about that. But to your point, you do need that Con Smythe performance. And yeah. I know he was named their best player in the playoffs, and he deserved recognition. He was outstanding, and that was kind of, to me, a lifetime achievement award for him. Yeah. But Kuzi was their best player in the playoffs, and Definitely. I believe they go as far as Kuzi takes them. 
Yep. And I still think that's the case. And, and people say, well, why can't they be more consistent or why can't they, you know, play 60 or 65 minutes? Why don't they string four or five wins together? And I genuinely believe it comes back to Kuznetsov might be their most skilled player and is unequivocally, if not their most important player, one of the top two or three. And he's not that consistent, right? I mean, game to game, you're not really sure what you're going to get. And I don't think it's, it, some people will say it's effort or engagement. I, I don't know if that's the case. Uh, it seems like he's a flow of the game guy and either like the puck finds him and it comes his way and he's creating or it doesn't. Um, but whatever it is, he's the answer. Like he unlocks this whole thing. And the reason why in this iteration of this group, they've made the one run and it was the year that he was amazing. It's not a coincidence. So I think he can elevate everybody. He may, he gives them a chance because you know Backstrom is going to be a stud. You know on both ends of the ice, he's going to be consistent. Yep. He's going to get everything he's got. Now you, you, you've you got two lines you've got to worry about. And you look at like they're having problems with the Penguins. Well, in these games, you've got to be able to match the lines of Crosby and Malkin. And if, if Kuzi lets you do that, you're in good shape. So he's always my answer. It's a bit of a cop-out. I mean, if I was going to throw one other guy at you, I would just say TJ Oshi, who, who I think is ultra consistent and is always going to give you every ounce of energy that he's got. But from a production standpoint, like if he was able to score a few extra goals at even strength or, or create some offense, like a player like that to help Ovechkin and Backstrom would be big. But the answer for me always comes back to Kuzi. Still a lot of untapped goal scoring, I think, in Jacob Verana. Not a name to sleep on either, but. There's yep. plenty of talent on, on the team. Last hockey question now before a quick NFL dabble. We wanted to make this Nats and Caps heavy, but always something going on in the NFL. Obviously, want to get a quick take from you on there. Uh, this year, there's no, oh, would you rather be a wild card to go over to the Atlantic Division side of the bracket in the first two rounds. You want to make the Final Four. You're going through two of your own divisional teams with this year's format. A lot can change between now and May. But right now, I'm going to name the legit contenders in the division and a sentence or less, you tell me if you're taking the Caps or that team in a seven-game series at the quarter mark based on what you've seen so far. Islanders. Caps. Okay. Flyers. Flyers. Penguins. Caps, weirdly enough, even though they've lost four or five. Bruins. <laughs> um, ooh, that's tough. I'm going to say the Bruins. All right. So that, there you have it. I mean, right there. Of the four contenders, two yes, two no. So it's it's going to come down to who you play when you play them, I guess. Come play off that. I mean, I, I disregarded the Sabres, Rangers, and Devils. Do any of them top the Caps in a seven-game series for you? You correctly disregarded them. I okay, think. yes. <laughs> um, all right, I said a quick NFL dabble. A lot of quarterback movement already with more to come. Which has been your favorite move so far? And what is a dream move where you say to yourself, I'd love to see this – QB rumored to be on the move in this specific situation. All right. First one I would answer is, is what do I like? Hipster answer here. I think I like Wentz to the Colts a lot. I love it too. I'm yeah. on the same boat with that one. So people all of a sudden think Carson Wentz is awful forever. And I'm not going to defend his 2020 season. It was a disaster there are so many players who had awful seasons in sports in the last year that normally don't like we could go through baseball numbers. I mentioned Patrick Corbin's regression or Josh Bell or some of the other guys, a lot of things were different and abnormal. Now that'll be the end of my excuse, excuse making for him. He stunk, right? He didn't play well. Everyone knows that 
it doesn't mean that he stinks. It doesn't mean that he can't play. He was broken. He slumped. For some reason, we don't really allow quarterbacks the same ability to scuffle that we allow in other sports, but he's back with a guy that helped him immensely originally in Frank Reich. I like the offense for him. I think that they've got some good weapons and a great running game. You know, they need him to be a little bit more of a game manager, I think, maybe make some plays with his scrambling and elusiveness, but don't turn the ball over as much. You don't have to play hero ball. We're not going to run it seven times a game like Doug Peterson does. Um, there are some things I think that are going to help him. And I actually just like that fit. Um, also the package wasn't astronomical. Like you're not yeah. giving up ones. You're, you're taking on a big contract and that's why you probably didn't have to give up a lot. So I, I did like that a lot. That could look funny in a year or two. And you guys could laugh at me because you know, he continues to play at the level he did in 2020, but people forget he was really good before last year. So I'll go with Wentz. The one that I would love to see is actually Deshaun Watson. Uh, being traded to the Miami Dolphins. I think that would be awesome. Uh, I think they're close. Now, how how much are they giving up and what are they giving up to get Deshaun Watson? Because some of these packages you're hearing are debilitating to the team, even to add Watson. We had Peter King on my show on Grant and Danny this week. And he was giving us, you know, from his Football Morning in America column, like some of the stuff that he's heard it might take. And he's talking about six or seven players and early picks. So these are good young players. These are like top tier rookie contract starters plus first and second round picks, like seven of them for Deshaun Watson. That's a ton. That makes you less close, less ready, so to speak. So having said that, um, I think he goes there, adds to that defense. I, I mentioned Flores earlier. I think he's one of the better young coaches in the league. I think they're on the verge. Uh, I'm not – I'm down on Tua. I'm not done with Tua, but I was not overly impressed by him this past season. And I'm normally not big on giving up on quarterbacks very soon, but you got a chance to get Deshaun Watson and you're knocking on the door of being really good, being a double digit win team. I think that would be a fun fit. I think they and the bills then push each other for years with Watson and Allen in the East and, and separate themselves from new England and everybody else. So that would be, I guess my big uh, move that I would like to see. We had uh, we had Brian Mitchell on. He said the same thing. He said yeah, he would want to really? see Watson in Miami. Yeah, uh, Grant. So we have two segments we do with all our guests to finish off. Swift seven rapid fire questions, and then we got a trivia question for you at the end. So first question of the Swift seven: What is your favorite sport to watch? That's impossible to answer, but I'll <laughs> say football. I get more excited you know, on a Sunday at 1257 than probably at any other time during the week. Uh, but there's days where I would tell you baseball or hockey, but let's go football. Okay. Uh, what's the sports venue you have not been to, but you want to most get to? AT&T Park in San Francisco for a baseball game. I think it's even it's got a new name. favorite now. ballpark. I think it's Oracle, maybe. It's Oracle. I think, I think it changed right. Oracle. Everything out that there is place has changed. Like My favorite ballpark, and it's not even close. Uh, now, favorite... I've been there before, but I was there for a tour, and they weren't playing a game then. Yeah, I was going to ask you why you specifically said for a baseball game as opposed <laughs> to what, yeah. but that's the answer. Because <laughs> I went there. I went on a tour. I saw like a, they were warming up for a concert during Super Bowl week when I was out there for the Super Bowl in San Francisco. Once you go up to the top level and see the view seats out in the oh bay. Oh, my God. It's can't unbelievable. Beat it. Can't beat it. Uh, favorite all-time athlete? I'm going to say – 
I'll go with uh, Michael Jordan. Okay. Narrowly over Cal Ripken Jr. And uh, what's your favorite TV show of all time? The Wire. All right, PJ gave you the easy ones. Number five, which meant more to you, Caps Cup or Nats World Series? Jesus, these are hard. Who? <laughs> uh, Caps Cup because it was the first of my life. Mm. Number six, when life returns to normal, what is the first crowd-oriented thing you'll do, like a concert, movie, sporting event? What's the first thing you'd like to get to? I hope – I don't know what they're going to do with the Nats, but I, I'd love to be at opening day. I mean, I'm going to a game the first day I'm allowed to. At, now, the last one, after watching them celebrate their respective titles with plenty of adult beverages, and I saved the hardest one for last, uh, would you rather party with Alex Ovechkin, Max Scherzer, or someone who I didn't mention that happened to also get really rowdy during those celebrations? I guess I'll go with uh, – I'll go with Max. I think Max can get after it a little bit. Uh, I, one thing for Ovi to be jumping in the fountains and stuff, but the night that the Nats – excuse me, the Caps won the Cup, I saw Max Scherzer at uh, MGM National Harbor when I walked in like real late that night. And uh, he was wearing a cap sweater and he was pumped up. So I think he can get after it a little bit. <laughs> nice. Uh, all right, Grant. So we end everything with the trivia question. We think we found a good one for you. Baseball oriented. Right. I like so it. each guest gets 90 seconds and then you get three strikes to work with. So right. your question is, there have been six teams, including the Nats, who have had a player win the MVP and who've had a player who's won the Cy Young since 2010. So Bryce Harper won the MVP in 2015. Scherzer won the Cy Young in 16 and in 2017. So of the other five teams, if you can give us four of the other five and name the players on those teams, we will give it to you. Oh, I like that. This is a brain buster. All right. First one that comes to mind is the Phillies. Not the Phillies, no. No, because of Ryan Howard. Okay. Um since 2010, so in the last 11 years. Yeah. Yeah. MVP and Desai Young. All right, the San Francisco Giants. Not the Giants. Really? Not a Buster <laughs> Posey like uh, Madison Bumgarner, Matt, Matt Kane. All right. Um, let's think Cy Young's here. Mets wouldn't have had an MVP to go with the Grom. Nats um, are one of six. Reds, Indians. Indians wouldn't have had an MVP to go with Kluber. Um, Tigers? Tigers, Tigers yep. They had Miggy and Verlander win the MVP, yeah. and then Scherzer and Verlander win Cy Young. So you got one, you need three left, you got 40 seconds left. All right, this is a hell of a question, by the way. This is <laughs> I like this. Um, Yankees would not have had a Cy Young. Chris Sale. Uh, Red Sox, no, Red Sox wouldn't have had. Damn, this is hard. You almost need to go by division, I think, and just start yep. mowing teams. You know, think uh, of a uh, think of top team in baseball. Dodgers, Dodgers, yep. Bellinger, Kershaw, and then yeah, Kershaw that one's easy. That one's easy. Um, let's see who. How many? How much time do I have? You got ten seconds left. Okay, uh, let me get one more. Um, Dodgers, Cardinals. Cardinals? Not the Cardinals. Uh, wow. Right division, it was, uh, Chris Bryant and Arietta from oh, the Oh, well, that's easy. Yeah. Okay. And, and then, one thing you mentioned, 
you, you mentioned one that you're going to kick yourself for under your breath. You said the Reds and you glossed over them. Votto got the MVP, and then last year, Trevor Bauer got the Cy Young. So they, well, see, they what's met. funny in my mind is I'm thinking, I'm thinking Votto, but I'm like, I don't have a Cy Young, and of course, it's Bauer last. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other one was, uh, was the Astros. They had Altuve win MVP. Oh, of course. And then uh, Verlander oh, was Cy Verlander. Young, and also Dallas Keuchel. I forgot Keuchel had won it. So the, the two of them. Keuchel Cy Young, that's true, about five yeah. years ago. Yeah. Yep, that's yep. One. I so, think in the future, I should just start with the best teams in baseball and work my way back <laughs> rather than trying to go by division. Phillies and Giants were good guesses. Uh, Posey. Yeah, so to me, I'm thinking this was like way back at the start of the 2010 window. Like like a Ryan Howard and a, you know, Hamels would have never won the Cy Young, but, you know, maybe like a Halliday or somebody like that. Yeah. So, uh, well, Grant, appreciate you coming on, man. We know, uh, we know you're obviously busy with, with your radio show. We love listening to it. Appreciate you coming on and uh, giving some insight. It was great getting to talk to you. Yeah, PJ Joe, thanks, fellas. I appreciate you guys. It was a lot of fun. Keep up the good work. All right, man. Once again, that was Grant Paulson of 1067 The Fan here in the DC area. And you can see with his background, if you're watching this on YouTube, if you're listening on any of our other things, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, you can't see it. So we'll tell you the bobblehead collection that he's got in that background. Caps, Nats. I mean, the good thing is for anybody who is fin media who listens to us and you've gone to games they will from time to time uh leave the bobblehead promotions that they give the fans at each spot for the media members i know that i have a juan soto and a max scherzer from two nats games that i got to cover as an intern so they will give you them i can only imagine the amount of games that grant has been to obviously as media and i'm sure that's contributed to that bobblehead collection probably a ton as a fan as well we should have asked them but uh incredible collection i hope mine looks like that one day and I hope that I get to enjoy the championships one day that he has gotten to enjoy with the Caps and the Nats for my Rangers, Mets, or Jets. So there's that. But I do like what he said about the Mets coming from him. I'm who sure you the did. Mets. I was surprised you didn't comment on it. Like I didn't want to jump in. I didn't want to jump in. But coming from him, who does not like the Mets, to speak that glowingly of the Mets, it's just given me more hope that I'm closer than I realize to maybe enjoying that. So. That NL East division is going to be – I agree with them on Atlanta. I don't think people were talking about them enough. They were up 3-1 on the Dodgers. They easily could have gone to the World Series, and then they bring in Ozuna. Their pitching's going to get healthy. They still got Acuna and Freeman. So Atlanta's going to be really good. The Nats, the Mets will be good. The Phillies, we, we were waiting for them to bounce back last year, but the shortened season – really hurt them because their pitching wasn't that mm-hmm. strong. So you think over a long period of time, re-signing Real Muto, they should be pretty good again. And then the Marlins should be the worst team in the league, but last year they made the playoffs. So um, they some of their young talent really came to life. They have some good young pitching prospects. So that is the best division in baseball. It should be fun to watch. It was funny, though, when Grant when he was talking about the offseason pieces, and I realized that everybody the Nats acquired is left-handed. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Brad Hand's left-handed, John Lester's left-handed, Josh Bell's a switch hitter, Kyle Schwarber's left-handed. So I don't know if the Nats did that on purpose. I don't know if they were trying to give more left-handed bats behind Soto and more left-handed pitching to go along with Corbin, but uh, they were all about the southpaws this offseason and the left They were. They were. I do like the offseason they had. I do agree with him that they're definitely in that cut below everybody else. Last year – almost last year, not quite last year, 
about eight months ago when we had our MLB preview for this past shortened season. I know you were high on the Nats. I was very down on them. World Series hangover, didn't think they had the pieces. It was a down year. I do think they bounced back, and we'll get into that more in the coming weeks as we go for a full season preview episode. I do think they bounced back. I do like some of the pieces they added, but certainly in that cut below. To the Braves' point, they remind me of another recent Atlanta team. It was the Atlanta Hawks team, remember, with Budenholzer. Yeah. I don't mean in the sense of, like, uh, they're going to get to the playoffs and flame out like that Hawks team did. I mean in the sense that that Hawks team had a good year. People slept on them the next year, and they brought it back and were the one seed. I'm not saying the Braves do that. Uh, the Dodgers are obviously the best team, but that kind of has the same vibe here. And, again, I just thought of the analogy because same city. But for all they did last year, and even for all they did the year before where people realized, all right, this team's coming, all of a sudden this offseason, the just – quiet hush that's come over talking about the Braves has been astonishing to me. It makes no damn sense. And I do agree with you, you and Grant, they will be in the playoffs. They will be a team to be reckoned with. Well, and that trivia question, when uh, I gave you the teams, the best odds to win the world series and in one spot, it was plus a thousand. The other, it was it got me about half point back. It got us, it got us to a level pegging again. So there it we go. did, it did. But yeah, the Braves, I mean, some spots are just not, I mean, the white Sox are favored higher than the Braves and we both like the white Sox young talent, but the whole Tony La Russa piece, you just don't know how that's going to mesh. And Atlanta's got a lot of guys that have been together for a long time. They know what they're doing. And now that they finally got over the hump of winning in the divisional round, they made it to the championship series. I think that gives them a lot of confidence that maybe they can even take it a step further this year. And then in hockey, also, just real quick, before we get into uh, into golf, I, I thought – Grant was spot on. I mean, you look at the the East Division, and it's really a five-team race. It's Boston, Absolutely. Philly, Washington, Pittsburgh, and the Islanders. Islanders beat Boston 7-2 last, two night. last night. So, I mean, that that's what it is. got to get as many wins as regulation as you can. There are going to be some eye-popping scores some nights. But uh, that – like the NL East is the best, going to be the best division in baseball. That is the best division. Hey, the Eastern hockey. divisions are making up for the NFC East in the other sports. NFC East was so bad, and now the NL East That's and the NFL East are making up for it. That's a good point. Uh, but yeah, Joe, obviously we got to talk a little bit of golf and some sad news this week when we heard about Tiger. Thankfully, he is alive, most importantly, but he is, he is too broken leg. He shattered both of his ankles, and uh, – you just, you know, thankfully, I like I said, he's alive, and then he's not paralyzed, so he'll be able to walk again. But I thought a bunch of the golfers were spot on when people were interviewing him this week. I heard Brooks Kepka talking about 90% of the guys out here are Tiger. We're playing golf because of Tiger. Rory, his comment about that he's not Superman, and, you know, we shouldn't be asking ourselves, when will he come back to play golf? We're just happy that he's still here with us. Um, and then Webb Simpson, too, saying that uh, he was just glad that, you know, Tiger's kids still still have a father. And that's that's the important stuff, um, because the pictures of the car, it, it oh obviously could have been a lot worse. It, it, it reminded me of and I, I was mad when people were making this comparison. But like I said, obvious comparison to draw just because they're of that same stature. The images from above, you had that same eerie feel like what? what happened with Kobe and what happened with Tiger and it started the same way like it was just like one small Twitter account mentioned it and everybody was like nah 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 and then more people started saying it more people started saying it and then all of a sudden you see the images of it uh, on Sports Center, and you're like 
oh my God, I don't care about golf at all. I'm just glad he's alive. Because if you saw that car, and I'm sure anybody who listens to this is a sports fan in some way, or they just like us very much, which isn't very many people, <laughs> sure you're a sports fan, you saw the pictures of that car. And the first thing you had to have said to yourself as well is like, I can't believe he got out alive. Yeah. And the, the deputy who was on SportsCenter, uh, I, I believe his name was Carlos Gonzalez, credit him properly. He was on SportsCenter and he said he was the first one to respond to the scene. And it's, you know, there was no alcohol. There was no, uh, initially they said there was no alcohol. There was no influence. It was just, it's just a very busy, dangerous stretch of roadway where he has seen many worse accidents than that. And an ESPN reporter then the following day went ahead and drove that road just to see it. And he said, without even realizing he was going 60 in that 45, because it's just a downhill slope freak accident for all the details that came out again, to reiterate what you said, just glad he's alive for, I don't even want to hear anybody ask about when he is going to ever play again, or if he ever is going to play again, we cross that bridge when we get there, he's alive. He's well, hopefully all accounts so far, a few days in already. And that's all that matters. Uh, Michael Eve, Sports Center anchor. I was just going to talk about that. <laughs> I really hope it comes to fruition. All the players this Sunday wear red to honor him. That would yep. be incredible, touching moment. And again, just thoughts and prayers to Tiger and his family. Um, you see images like that, and you are reminded how fragile life is, and that golf is the least important thing right now. And it's the golf tournament this week is a WGC, which means there is no cut. Every golfer gets to play all four rounds. So the fact that all the golfers get to make it to a Sunday, I just think mm -hmm. for all of them to be able to wear red would be really, really freaking cool. I thought that was a great idea when I saw that too. Of course. So best wishes, Tiger. Hopefully he keeps uh, recovering well and just glad that he's still here for sure. No easy transition from that, Joe, but no. uh, we'll try. As we move over to college hoops, like you said, March Madness is only a couple days away. And we're starting to get heated about certain things, we, me and we you. We're, we're texting back and forth with each other. We've had our disagreements about the Big Ten. And then last night, we had our disagreements about Michigan State. We can both agree that they're playing really well right now. Yes, yeah, so we're going to get to that in a second. Before that, I just wanted to point out the new bracketology this morning did come out from Joe Lenardi. We will get to that as well. Uh, Obviously, a ton to digest. The main things to hit on, despite the loss to Michigan State, Ohio State is still on a one line along with Baylor, Michigan, and Gonzaga. So nothing at the top changed, even though Michigan State did beat Ohio State last night. And there's plenty to digest beyond that. But the, the main one lines, they all stayed the same way. And PJ, I have a surprise for you today yeah. uh, because you in our text message chain last night as we were debating this, you teased some big point that you had about oh. the argument we were having. And I needed to have our resident everything Swiss Army knife. We had him on as a full guest one time for all Ravens talk, Ryan Warmly and friend of the pod, avid college basketball fan like us. I wanted him here to Good. hear the, the more the merrier. If you want to invite the whole University <laughs> of Maryland to come to my TED talk, by all means, I'm all here. For so, it. so the preface is we were arguing last night about Michigan State. I don't believe they are some top team, but I do think they have, in the way that Duke has been dumped on all year, I think Michigan State was overrated, yet also better than people gave them credit for early on, to which PJ just said they were garbage all year until the last two weeks. Uh, and now PJ said that he has some point to give here. I'll let him give that, and I'll give my side of the argument. Worm, you're here as a judge and chime in whenever you want. 
<laughs> so my point isn't necessarily towards Michigan State. It's about the Big Ten and college basketball okay. as a whole, okay? And I haven't heard anybody make this point, and I'm just thinking about it last night driving home from work because I've been trying to explain to you guys how I'm seeing things, and I think this is the best way to do it. College basketball this season is the same as college football. You have three elite teams, Gonzaga, Baylor, and Michigan. And in college football, you had Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State. And then that number four team was up for debate. In college football, it was Notre Dame, but not a lot of people felt like it was Notre Dame. Some people thought it was Texas A&M, Oklahoma, Florida. College basketball right now, some people think it's Ohio State. Some people think it's Alabama, Iowa, Illinois, Villanova, whoever. So the way people view Notre Dame in college football, and we all agreed that Notre Dame was a good team. They were 10-0. and 0. Whether or not they deserved the fourth spot was up for interpretation, but they were a good team. But a lot of people said that Notre Dame stunk. And Notre Dame didn't stink. They were a good team. But when you were trying to view them in the big picture towards those other top three teams, people knew that Notre Dame could not hang with those three teams. So when I keep telling you that Iowa and Illinois stink, it's not that I think they're bad teams. I just think that everybody's talking about them, whether you turn on ESPN and listen to Jay Billis or Dan Dockett or Seth Greenberg, and an Iowa highlight comes on or an Illinois highlight comes on. And they're like, oh, this is a team that can make the Final Four and go all the way. And I just see them as people saw Notre Dame. And I could be wrong. But when I say they stink, that's what I mean. I just feel like they're overvalued in the way people are looking at them big picture. One more thing I'll say is that if Iowa or Illinois were to lose in the NCAA tournament, I would say to myself, that team's not as good as I thought they were. If Gonzaga or Baylor or Michigan were to lose, I feel like whoever took them off would be whoever beat them, we would be saying that team is whoever beat them. That team was really good that beat them. So I think it's that you look at the SEC in college football, you look at the Big Ten in college basketball, they're the same. Alabama was Michigan. You have four Big Ten teams in the top 10 Iowa, Illinois, Michigan, Ohio State. You had four top 10 teams in the SEC Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Texas AM. It's the same thing. A lot of people thought the SEC was overrated. They thought Alabama was great, but maybe Texas A&M wasn't the number five team. Georgia didn't really beat anybody. Florida's offense was great, but their defense wasn't great. Sounds like Iowa, doesn't it? So there's a lot of similarities between college basketball and college football. So I was thinking about it, and I'm like, that's probably the best way I can illustrate it, is when I say teams stink, Look at them as people looked at Notre Dame and college football in the sense that they're a good team, but now we have to put them in the championship view, how we view them along with the nation's best teams. And and that's how I see it. I'm just going to interject before Joe goes here. PJ, you kind of had me going along there for a little bit of that. I like some of the comparisons you were making. But you totally lose me when you say that if a team loses in the flukiest postseason in sports in a single elimination March Madness, that you're going to evaluate them differently in terms of how good they were over the season. Like teams don't go undefeated. Nobody's done it since Indiana 40 years ago. You're going to lose at some point if it happens to happen in March. 
in, again, an extremely fluky environment that is even more fluky this year because of all the COVID considerations. I, I'm just not going to think that they're worse because of that. And that's the thing that we keep coming back to where the disconnect is, where Worm and I agree, and PJ, you don't. When we're talking about the Big Ten, we're not gauging success based on how many of those teams make the Elite Eight or Final Four. That's what you keep saying, your barometers. You keep saying, oh, the Big Ten is over, overvalued. Uh, they, if they're lucky, they'll get one team in the Final Four. Well, there's only four teams that make the Final Four, and especially this year where Gonzaga's from a conference that nobody cares about, you're already going to discount a bunch of big conferences because of the fact that there's only four spots. You're putting a WAC team in there, or WCC, whatever they are. It's an acronym that starts with a W. You're putting them in there, so you're taking another spot away. So obviously, there's going to be these big conferences that are left out, and it's, it's not really – I don't see it as an indictment if, if Ohio State, Michigan – and Illinois, if none of them make the final four, if none of them make it, it's not really an indictment because it's, again, it's so fluky. That Virginia team that lost to UMBC, I didn't turn around and say, oh, they're worse than we thought they were. No, it was a 99 times out of 100, they beat UMBC. That night was the one. In such a fluky tournament like this, I'm not putting, I'm, I'm not going to say the whole season we just had means nothing because uh, Michigan loses to an eight seated uh, or an 11 seated Drake team or something. I don't know if that's a matchup, just an example off the top of my head. If they lose to Drake in the second round, I'm not going to say, well, Michigan was a fluke all year and the big 10 is weak. Like, no, it, it, it was a one game scenario in the flukiest of all tournaments. So that's where the disconnect is where we see it as we want to see what you do all year in the regular season. I want to see how many teams from a conference make the tournament. I want to see how many teams are ranked, how many of them are seated highly at the end of the year that's where I cut off my barometer of which conferences were the strongest this year. I make that evaluation at the end of the regular season. And then the postseason is what it is. It's almost like how MVP and whatever are regular season awards. I'm dishing out my strongest conferences and whatnot at the end of the regular season. And, and I and get that. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say like to play it out differently, not just that Michigan could lose to like an 11 seeded Drake, like Joe said, but maybe they lose to a two seeded Illinois. I mean, and, and then only one of those two teams that they're playing in the Elite Eight can make it to the Final Four. So when you get 10 teams in, they're bound to face each other at some point over the course of the bracket. And, and to expand it further to just the Final Four, a lot of people like to say that the Big Ten isn't on the elite tier of conferences because they haven't had a national championship winner since 2000. I mean, 2002 kind of with, with Maryland. Obviously, yeah. they were in AC at the time. I just had to point that out. And they played, um, and who do they play in that final? Indiana, of course. Okay. <laughs> so. so, so a lot of people like to point that out. But let's say Gonzaga wins the title this year. They're clearly the best team in the country. They're they're obviously going to be the heavy favorite going in. Does that mean the WCC, which it is a WCC show, not the yeah. WAC? Does that, mean the WCC, the does that mean they're better than the Big Ten just because they have a more recent national championship contender? No, it, it's it's about the depth of the conference. It's about the larger sample size of an entire regular season. You guys know I like I like to talk about things like sample size and numbers, and and we we're sort of texting this as well. But Ken Palm solved college basketball. There there are too many data points for the human brain to consider in an entire season of college basketball games played at different levels, different conferences, different venues to, to truly examine it and say, my eye test can tell me like who the true best teams are. Now you can, your eye test can say Gonzaga is better than like, you know, Loyola Marymount or whatever, but, but it can't uh, evaluate on the margins as well as a computer can. And, and there's a reason like, like Vegas always knows, they know because they trust Ken Palm numbers and they trust efficiency. That's what matters in college basketball. 
And the Big Ten, by those numbers, by Ken Palm, is the second best conference they have ever evaluated. Behind only, I think it's I think it's the 04 ACC or 05. It's a conference from a long time ago, but they are blowing every other conference out of the water. And to follow up on that, after last night's games came in and the numbers recalculated, Big Ten has 14 teams. People forget that because it's a Big Ten, but it's got 14 teams. Ten of the 14 teams are in the top 35. That's, I mean, that's absurd. That's I've never said to you, I've never said to you, it isn't the best conference in college basketball. I just feel like the teams, some of the teams in the conference are overvalued. Yes, I get that. But there's the other part of that argument that you have been bringing up. You brought it up on last week's show too, when it was just you and I. The other part of that argument that you brought up is you don't give the Big Ten any credit because you don't think they'll do it in March. And that's a totally separate argument. Well, how do you how do you evaluate a team? How do you evaluate a conference? I, I get you evaluate them I with their said, body of work and what they and do the regular, in the regular, the regular season. season. But I the postseason has to matter a little bit. I get it's fluky and anything can happen. But at the end of the Doesn't day, you, you gotta some Not, some it, teams have the, to this win. This is the only this is the only sport postseason where in terms of evaluating overall strength of a conference, I'm putting no stock in the postseason because it is so fluky because 15 seeds beat two seeds. And we don't bat an eye, the Florida Gulf coasts against Georgetown, the Lehigh's against Duke and so on and so on. We don't bat an eye when those things happen. Um, and- March madness is an entertainment product. I think even yes. the NCAA would tell you that it's not designed to determine who the best team in college basketball was. If it it's were designed not, to I mean, be most, the, most years, were, the best team doesn't win. Yeah. If it was designed to be who the best team in college basketball was, they would chop off a couple of regular season games. And I've been saying this, we haven't really talked about it because it's not really ever talked about at all because nobody's ever touching March Madness. But if you wanted it to be truly the best and, and really evaluate it, your first two rounds, you do single game. R15 is going to upset too. It's going to happen. It shouldn't, but it's going to happen. First two rounds, the first weekend, essentially, you do that. Second weekend, best of three, final four is best of five. And that's how you do it. You chop off a few regular season games, and then getting to those numbers isn't too taxing on the players. It's going to generate more money for the NCAA. So like I said, first weekend, single game elimination. Second weekend, best of three. Final four, best of five. That's I mean, do it. I, I Let mean, me ask you this, too. If Maryland plays, let's see, Loyola Chicago in the 8-9 game, how many, te- how many people are going to look at that game and say, oh, Maryland's a Big Ten team. They've beaten this team, this team, and this team, and that's why I'm taking them. I think a lot. Right. <laughs> I think a lot. Right. So that's what I'm saying is there's this perception because they played in this conference and because they beat these teams that they're automatically how better you, than how that team. Not, how could you not perceive that when, again, 10 of the top 35 Ken Palm teams are Big Ten teams that they've played and that they've beat, and this goes for other teams in the Big Ten, like same thing, Michigan, Michigan State now that they're getting hot. If they sneak in and they're a 12 seed, say they're in the playing game and then they make it at the 12 seed. If they're playing like a six seeded, I don't know, USC team, would it not be viable to say, well, the Pac-12 kind of sucks overall. Michigan State is in a better conference, battle tested every single night, beat Ohio State, beat Illinois. But again, that's my point. Their USC is in a bad conference. Does that make them a bad team? That's my, been my point is you have to look at these teams face value. I get the conference is great, but the teams as themselves, are they as good as people say? I, I, think, I think it's not that great. 
If it's the not that those teams great, are what is the conference made out of? The conference is made out of those teams. It's those teams that make the conference great. And they're all good teams. I just don't think they're as good as everybody thinks they are. I think Some when you're in teams. a bad conference, you just know it's more of a question mark. You know less about them as a fan. We know that Maryland is facing the best of the best every single night. They don't have any easy games outside of their, their home Nebraska. streets of Nebraska. Right, every right. other game they've played has been an absolute battle. Whereas a team in the Pac-12 or, or even a Gonzaga, who I'm certainly not knocking again, I think they're obviously the best team in the country. I, I do think it's easier it's easier to blow out bad teams than it is to win by seven points against a really good team. And that's what the teams in the Big Ten have been doing. They've been winning close, tough, hard-fought games all season long, literally every single game, just about. Whereas a team, you know, like Loyola Chicago, how much, how much stiff competition are they facing in, in the right. Missouri Valley? Well, yeah. that's what I'm saying. I mean, the Terps play a ranked team every single night. So to just say they're better because they have more wins against ranked team because they've had a way but more they're, opportunities. But they're actually beating those ranked teams. If they and, were and a bad team, they would be losing those games. And it's, cliche, and it's cliche, but it goes back to the whole thing of iron sharpens iron. There's a reason that all these people who have played the game before bring it up. It's a reason that PJ, you could appreciate this. People always love the SEC in football. When you're playing these best of the best teams on a nightly basis, it's going to get your team better. If you sure. take, if you take blind, if, if you take Maryland, just we use them as an example because two of us went there and we love them. If you take Maryland and you had them in the Big Ten versus having them in the WCC with Gonzaga. At the end of the year, the Maryland in this universe is going to be much better than the Maryland in the parallel universe of being in the WCC because in the WCC, they can coast. They can just beat up on bad teams. They're not really talking about honing their skills. Practices probably aren't going to be as hard as it is in the Big Ten. At the end of the year, then, your final product is a much better team. And that's why when you are making your bracket, you should be taking into consideration, oh, this team went through the Big Ten. I'm trusting them over team A because of that, because you are getting better every single night. And again, I, I can't harp on that enough. That is what is building. The, I, I I just, that's part of the reason that you don't see, I feel at least a lot of teams from lesser conferences take Gonzaga as the prime example. When, when did Gonzaga win a national title? They haven't won one. They've been so great every single year, but I think the, the difference is sure. There's a matter of luck. It's the flukiest tournament, but there's gotta be a part of you that turns around and says, well, if you're coasting through all these teams throughout the whole season, St. Mary, San Francisco, Pepperdine, and now all of a sudden you're going to turn around and based on Lenardi's bracket today, just for example, not saying Maryland would beat Gonzaga because Gonzaga will smoke Maryland, but in the second round, Gonzaga versus Maryland. Maryland will immediately be the best team that Gonzaga has played since conference play started. And it's not even close. Right. So when you go from those cupcakes to that, and then now in the, in, in the third round, you're going to face either Virginia or USC. That's where the difference comes in and why you take stock in those tougher conferences than necessarily that top team. Yeah, if, if Maryland does face Gonzaga, I, I'm certainly not going to pick them to win, but no. I'm definitely going to take them to cover the first half because it's it's going to be a, a, a culture shock almost to, to be, oh, wow, this is a team that can actually pass and has athletes and and, and talent and, and real coaching. And, and like Joe said, that's not a team that 
We could debate that's, the real coach. Zaga's face. See, I'm, <laughs> that, that's I'm, a longer debate. I get what you guys are saying about the conferences and playing in a certain conference and how it makes you better. But you also know that college basketball is all about matchups. And I think it's, it's just unfair to say sometimes there's conference fatigue. And when there's so much familiarity and you're so used to playing a certain style of basketball, that can hurt you when you get to the tournament and you go against certain teams that play a completely different style of ball. So I see what you're saying. And again, the Big Ten is the best conference in college basketball. But when you look at those Gonzaga teams, I mean, again, who's the best pro player that Mark Fuse ever had? It's probably Rui. Rui. Right. <laughs> Adam Morrison was phenomenal, but in the NF, but in the NBA, he flamed out. So now he's getting guys like Suggs and Kispert and Timmy. So the talent is finally start. That's why I can't wait for the tournament this year, because well, if Gonzaga doesn't win it this year, then Mark Few should be pretty worried. I, I want to also make the point that a lot of the Big Ten teams that PJ is concerned about, like, oh, Iowa, they don't play defense nearly as well as, as they can score. Um, Illinois is up and down, really inconsistent night to night. Um, teams like that, we're not comparing them to whatever their ideal form is. We're comparing them to what the actual teams in college basketball are this year. And maybe they are flawed. In fact, they are definitely flawed. But college basketball teams, even the great ones, are flawed every year. If they, sure. if they were perfect, they'd be playing at the professional level, not exactly. in college. And, and relative to their competition, the Big Ten has been just smoking them. It's been far away the best in college basketball, even if maybe in a different year, the, the gap in relative value wouldn't be as wide. But again, this is a COVID year. Things are different. Duke and Michigan State and Kentucky and Kansas have all struggled this year. UNC struggled. All the Blue Bloods have not been that great this year. Those are teams that rely on freshmen a lot of the time. And, and they, they come together and gel as the season goes along. And that's why we're seeing Duke and Michigan State get better as it's gone along because these freshmen are finally getting practice and, and time. And that's how I was, was going to segue us into the Michigan State debate here before we let you go, Worm, because that was the other big hot topic that's, you know, you're going to see it on SportsCenter all day. Uh, we released this episode Saturday. It's going to be a big talk all day Saturday ahead of the game against Maryland on Sunday. Um, PJ, I want to get what you gauge as like a viable team because we were going through this last night with Michigan State. And, and Worm, to your point about like – Just like the, all season, the, a team that's yeah, been good. The, the questions about Illinois and, and, and Iowa – Part of that is because they're going up against the quote-unquote bottom teams that are Michigan State. Now, the debate we were having last night, I've said that Michigan State all year, I've thought of them as a team early season, overranked. They were never the number four team in the country, which is, I believe, as high as they got. But they were playing night in, night out, like a consistent 7-10 to 10 seed. And when I was talking, to this, talking about this to PJ yesterday and to Davey Siegel, last week's guest, who is a big Michigan State fan, they said Michigan State has been garbage all year. And I just don't get the sentiment there. You go back and you look, and I watched seven of their early 12 games because I had money on six of them. They, early on, were they playing to their rank? No. But they were, again, like I said, playing as a 7-10 to 10 seed. They were 8-4. and four. Four of Their four losses, two of them were against a top-10 Wisconsin team, a number 21 Minnesota team on the road, who also smoked um, Michigan and is Michigan's only loss. Their other loss was a buzzer beater against Purdue, who has been ranked this year. And then their fourth loss was against Northwestern during Northwestern's hot stretch before Darren Ravel uh, jinxed them on Twitter, and they've lost like every game since. 
and their eight wins, did they play anybody marquee? Really? No. You play who's in front of you. They beat a Notre Dame team who was pesky. And again, throughout the year, they faded with COVID issues. They beat Duke in Duke's third game of the year. This was before Duke got bad. Duke was still solid early on. They hit that. Do we know if they were ever good, though? That's the thing. (laughs) they They were never elite. And again, Duke, like Michigan State, didn't play to their rank, but they played to where I think they could be seated, which is 7 to 10 or 8 to 12, whatever you want to say. They didn't hit their tailspin, Duke, until mid-January when they lost, I think it was seven out of eight games. I'll also say Duke is sort of like like the Patriots where, like, if I'm on the road against Coach K or against Bill Belichick, like, that's an impressive win. I don't really care who's on the court. They they beat Duke. They beat Notre Dame. And, again, third game of the year, whatever it was. I'm not saying Notre Dame's great, but, like, it's, it's an early season team that you see team trip up against. And then they, their big emphatic win was when they beat Rutgers by 20. At the time, Rutgers was number 15. People were talking about Rutgers finally making the top 10 for the first time in like forever. And then Rutgers since has gone down, but they've had plenty of injuries. Geo Baker, Amori, they've had a, a ton of injuries. I think Harper missed a couple games. So they beat Rutgers when Rutgers was being talked about being moved into the top 10. So you're eight and four with that resume. How do you say that's garbage? I see that as a team who is playing to like a seven to 10 seed, which is where I think they could end up if they continue to streak down the end. I don't get, I don't, I don't, I want to know where your head's at with that. Well, a couple things you're like, I get the record. Like they had a good record of eight and four, but again, I mean, it's, you guys keep bringing up Gonzaga and like, if they didn't have their non-conference schedule, what's, the win in the WCC we'd look at and be like, that's, that's a great win. And they'd be 20 and zero in the WCC and they'd have a great record, but you look at the record and you'd be like, well, what, where's the, where's the great win that you can hang your hat on. And I just didn't see that with Michigan state early on. My second thing would be the more I was thinking about it. I think teams like Michigan state there, there's so much perception built in with them and Tom Izzo has obviously built such a great program that when they don't even look half as good as they normally do, That's true. It, it might make them look even worse than they actually are. So I'll saying. admit they, they might not have been as bad as I thought they were. But Joe, honestly, a big reason why I was just down on Michigan State for so much of this year is just watching Tom Izzo. He's usually such a fiery, competitive, pumping his arms coach. And you just watch him, and he just, for most of the games, he he just sits there. He did get killed a couple times for that last year, and that's been coming through my mind. I don't remember who the player was, but there was a couple times last year where he got in a guy's face, and he got some criticism for it. So I think he's tried to tell it. I think he's made a conscious effort to tell it. Davey has told me, too, that uh, just from people in the program, he said that Tom, he hasn't coached this team as hard as other teams but he's definitely realized that this team doesn't have as much talent as his other teams do so his expectations aren't as what they normally would be well it's it's also like I don't want to suggest that he doesn't care about this season or that he's not giving his best effort or anything like that but I don't think we can overstate just how little we know about how the pandemic is affecting people. There might maybe he's not screaming at his players because he's like they're all going through a really difficult once in a generation experience right I now. Maybe, like like I, I just pretty much any question mark I have about a team's performance this year in any sport 
I'm I'm throwing out yeah. entirely. And, I, and that was that was a big part of PJ your argument last night when we were going back and forth was that they had that game against Rutgers, Michigan State, where they lost 67 to 37. They put up 37 in a college basketball game, which is horrible. But again, you were failing to consider that that was their first time they were on the court in three weeks. They couldn't play or practice because they had an outbreak. First time on the court in three weeks against a team who was starting to get some pieces back in Rutgers, who is really, really a tough team. And, and I don't want to see them in March, especially now that they're getting healthier and Geo Baker is going to heat up again. Um, they were 26-20 down in that first half. Izzo came out afterwards and said, like, look, we haven't played or practiced in three weeks. We're missing guys, so we don't have our full rotation. We were dead in the second half. He admitted, yeah. like, the conditioning just wasn't there. 26-20 right. at the half, and then I think they lost um, whatever it was, 37. 31 to 17 or something like something crazy like that. Or no, sorry, if it was 41-17 they lost in the second half. So it. even so, like that Rutgers game, that's a big blemish because they just got demolished. Right. You, you can't – I don't even consider that game. And, and when it comes to the committee, like I don't even think that game gets evaluated. Again, three weeks, missing players, no practice. That's going to ha- – like what did you expect was going to happen? A- anecdotally, I don't think there's a sport that I would be less confident in a team coming off a COVID-induced break than college basketball. Just – in terms of the, the players are so young, they need the practice time. They need the coaching. That's why coaching so, matters so much in college basketball. And it's a sport based on endurance. And, and you're, you can't have dead legs or you can't shoot. I mean, it's, I just, I'm with you, Joe. I can't possibly hold that against them or any team in their first couple of games coming back from, from a COVID outbreak. I mean, it, it's not just at Rutgers. Their next two after that, we're at Ohio State and at Iowa. And the Iowa game is when they started to look like themselves. They lost by, I think, like six on the road against mm-hmm. a really good Iowa team. So that's when they started to kick it back into gear and get to where they are now. So I, I think that, you know, again, it's, it's, it's a year we have to just take a step back and – instead of dismissing a team like that, you got to take into account all the things. And that's where I think it's going to get interesting down the stretch. Now, um, this was the last point before I wanted to let you go where when it comes to bracketology and, and the committee, I'm really curious to see how different, you know, how, when the committee releases their, their top four in, in each region, I'm curious to see how different that might look versus Lenardi and all these other guys, because I'm curious to see, if the committee starts taking into account, all right, team a, they had this month where they were just COVID ridden and look at what they were before and after. All right. Maybe they're only 12 and nine right now, but I'm throwing away these four games. So in my eyes, they're really like a 12 and five team. Like I wonder how off the projections of brackets are going to be from the actual ones because we're not in that room. Well, I guess it's not a room this year. You can't be together, but uh, we're not in that discussion of what is going to matter and what is not going to matter this year. Like again, Michigan state being the prime example, Lenardi has them first four out. If the committee was meeting tomorrow, I would put my money on them putting them in, even though Lenardi and other people have them first four out right now, because I think they're going to sit down. Yes. The name on the front of the Jersey is going to play a big role in that, but they're going to look at it and say, okay, we really could kind of throw out three games entirely. And we see what they've done. Now we saw what they were before they were stricken with COVID. I think that's going to be a big factor down the stretch where you're going to see more 
mistakes in bracketology than usual because you don't know how the committee is going to evaluate these things. It's, it's never been tougher to be the committee, but it's also never been tougher to try and guess what the committee is going yeah. to do. And this is in recent years, we have seen a shifting in how the committee evaluates teams in terms of relying more on these metrics like Ken Palm. Obviously they went from the RPI to the net rankings that incorporated more efficiency rates instead of, and, and you know, where the wins come quad one, quad two, stuff like that. So there already has been a shift in the mindset of the committee in recent years. And now we have to take in the COVID stuff. And it's not just like, oh, will they not include that loss to Rutgers? But do they count that as a win for Rutgers when they're evaluating Rutgers profile? There's almost too much information to sort through. And, and I almost wonder if they just say, forget it. We, we can't possibly wrap our heads around every piece of COVID-related information so we're just going to do our best to evaluate this as a normal season. I, I, I don't, I don't honestly know. And, and to your point about Michigan state, I mean, we spent the bulk of this debate about them talking about their early season stretch. And when they came back from COVID, I, I think they're getting in because their last two games are wins oh, over top course. five teams. I mean, yeah. they, they beat Illinois comfortably. They, they beat Ohio state. They are playing much better than they were. I, I absolutely think they're the going to beat Maryland. going to value that. You can say it. They will, they will, they will, <laughs> They have a good chance of beating Maryland. You guys know how pessimistic I am about Maryland all the time. I feel very good about Sunday. I don't know if I'm The best thing that could have happened to them was actually Michigan State beating Ohio State. That was the best thing. I feel very good about Maryland Sunday, and I never feel good about Maryland. Joe, it's Izzo versus Turge, and the way they're looking, I just wouldn't. The way they're playing right now, Michigan State, you have you, you think of this as a sandwich spot like you do in the NFL. They just beat Illinois. They just beat Ohio State. Coming up after Maryland is two games against arch rival Michigan. They've played a, a, a lot of games now in a short stretch. Maryland had the whole week off to rest the legs. Playing on Sunday, I feel good about Maryland on Sunday. This is the, this is the spot you want to be if you're Maryland. I will give you that. But I just – I can – it's not in my DNA to feel confident about Mark Turgeon going up against uh, Thomas. I, I, it just can't. I, like, I agree. I literally, there is a, there's a, an obstacle, a force field in front of me. I cannot take that step. I was good at, I was good with pegging the Michigan state Maryland games last year. I called them winning on the road and he's Lansing. I called Michigan state beating Maryland in the return game when Maryland had college game day on leap day last year. Uh, I, I feel very. I, good I can't wait it. to see what that spread is. I bet it opens up at about Maryland minus one. I, I will say we haven't them. really talked about the Terps that much in this conversation. It's been more of a larger college basketball talk. But or, uh, my evaluation on the Terps, I think, is so spot on. It's all matchup based. They cannot score more than seventy points against a good team if they play a team like Rutgers or Wisconsin or Purdue that they can keep it ugly with. They can beat them. If they play an elite offensive team, they, they, they can't beat that team. It's, I will, it's just, pretty I will simple. say my biggest complaint about Turgeon over the years hasn't been his performance in March. It's been that his teams have been worse at the end of February than they were in the middle of January. They, they have seemingly gone downhill in just about every year. That, that's pretty concerning to me. This year, it's the opposite. If you look at Bartorvik's rankings, it's like Ken Palm, but you can, you can designate certain time frames. If you look at the whole season, they're like 41st. If you look at the last month, they're 20th. If you look at the last two weeks, they're 14th. This is, that's a learning curve. This team is mm-hmm. getting better. And if you look in the last month, they have the fourth most efficient defense in all of college basketball, even taking into consideration the teams they've played. So they are, 
getting to an elite level defensively that we the haven't seen from them great. really yes. ever under Turgeon. And Turgeon is a good defensive coach. We've never seen them play defense like this. They're, they're running their campaign. Quan Smart and uh, James Graham are trying to push for uh, Daryl Morsell to be defensive player of the year, um, which is fun to see. But the entire team is playing great defense. The offense is shooting better. Wiggins is playing like an All-American the last two weeks. Well, that's I mean, the kid. Th- th- this team is a better team. It's, it's not that they're playing better. It's not that they're just taking advantage of a lighter schedule. This is a better team today than they were a month ago. And that might be the first time we've been able to say that about a Turgeon team at the end of February. I don't think they can get as high as a six, but I hope they end up as a six, seven or fall to a 10 because I think they've got a much better chance, obviously at a two or a three seed. The way it is now they're on the nine line. I don't want to be an eight or nine because if they're an eight or nine, I don't feel confident obviously in getting past the second round. Now that they, the, the committee is obviously going to try to keep them out of Ohio state and Michigan's region. So there's not a second round big 10 matchup. So that mm-hmm. means it's either going to be Baylor or Gonzaga. And I don't <laughs> want that. Um, so I'm hoping that they can either keep this run going, get to a six or lose a game or two and fall back to a 10. Cause then I think they could be in a, they have a chance, a chance to get to the sweet 16. I, I, I agree. And that's the nice thing about having one at Rutgers is you can afford to lose to Michigan state now and still not fall off the bubble entirely. And, and in fact, still be on the right side of the bubble. Probably the, right. the last thing I know I've sort of bogarted this whole, whole show for you guys, <laughs> but I, I, I do just want to say, that it's kind of fun. I prefer if they were like a three seed, but it's kind of fun having Maryland on the bubble because we really haven't had that basically since they've gotten good under Turgeon. The first three years, they were bad, and they really weren't all that close, except for one year they kind of were, but of course they didn't make any tournaments in my four years there. And then Melo came, and they were clearly in. There was no debate at all. It was, it was what seed are they going to be, not whether or not they're in. Then we had the year where Justin Jackson got hurt, and they were clearly out and not going to make it. They didn't make the NIT. So this is the first year that it's actually, there's going to be some curiosity on selection Sunday, like in the back of my mind, are they actually going to make it? And I'm not hundred percent sure. And, and again, and that's, that's exciting to you. It, it, it's adding gray hairs to my head, but it's just a refreshing, like it's, it's I'm not concerned different. unless they, unless they go one and two and lose in the first round of the big 10 tournament. I don't even think it's a question anymore. Turgeon, Turgeon, he, uh, Maryland, Kansas, and Gonzaga are the only three teams in the last two years to not lose a game outside of quad one. So Maryland is one of 13 teams that has five quad one wins this year. Again, I don't see, unless they go one and two and lose in the first round, I don't see any way that they missed the tournament. And I just don't see that. happening. I'm not saying it's impossible that that doesn't happen. It could happen, but I I, I don't see that happening. I, I think, I think, I think if they go one and two, I still would expect them to win the first game of the Big Ten tournament. Of course, tournament. that's what I'm saying. I, I think they'll get past that first game. Well, Worm, yeah. you said you were sorry that you, like, bombarded us. <laughs> this was my – this is what I had in my – I kept it as a surprise for PJ. This is what I had in mind of kind of like a three-person show today because you're good at the topic. And What did you think of the college football point? wasn't bad, right? You wasn't see where bad. I was going I think it's that. good, except for I, – I didn't really harp on you enough about this. In college football, being top-heavy as a conference just matters more than in college basketball. Like, I'd rather have the depth in college basketball – but I think your comparison about the top four teams is, is actually pretty spot on. So you got Pixar. You've been our Ravens <laughs> full-time guest. And today you were a de facto third host. This is exactly what I envisioned. 
Really, I'm the I'm not the resident Pixar concierge. I'm not the resident Ravens expert. I'm the resident surprise. <laughs> you are the resident surprise. You should put that in your Twitter bio, actually. <laughs> resident yeah. surprise. All right, Orm. Thanks so much. Uh, you don't even got to listen to this week's episode because you were pretty much on it. You know what? Listen to, the, listen to the Grant interview. Stay tuned to listen to trivia, but you can just fast forward through the middle 40 minutes. Uh, I, I can't wait to do just that. Thanks, All right, Orm. Thanks, Orm. See you guys. Thanks again to Ryan Warmly for joining us. That was a nice little surprise, Joe. Well done. I got you when the Ravens played the Browns, and now you surprised me for college basketball. There we go. Because I texted you guys last night, and I was like, I have a great point about college. And right after you said that, I was like, I got to have him on so he can so he can hear it too. But um, plenty of obviously great college yeah. basketball again this weekend. And, uh, you know, the last couple of weeks, we've been picking out which ones we've been looking at as the main matchups. And each week that we've – done this the last two weeks the ones we've picked have turned out to be fantastic games so hopefully we can make it three weeks in a row um where, where are you going first for your your main game that you're looking at let's see the main game i mean it's probably got to be baylor and kansas you got to think if baylor is going to go undefeated that this in the big 12 this would be their toughest game not because kansas is necessarily the best team that they'll play in the Big 12, but just because of Fog Allen and how tough it is to get a win in that building. It'll be in prime time, ESPN. Baylor, we saw how much they struggled with Iowa State off that COVID layoff. They easily could have lost that game. So are they still showing some effects from that, or are they back to their regular self? I think there's a lot of question marks from that game. Kansas has played better as of late. They lost a tough overtime game to Texas. So definitely that game intrigues me. And then the other Big 12 team, Texas Tech and Texas, two teams that, you know, Texas. You don't love them. Don't love Texas. Uh, You know, extremely athletic. They can score points. But their guard play, you know, Ramey and Matt Coleman, like they're good players. But I just, Texas had a lot of good wins early on. But I feel like they're a team that is kind of fizzling out a little bit. Texas Tech, we both love us and Chris Beard. We love yeah. Mac McClung. On paper, Texas Tech should be really good. And they're a team that you probably do not want to see in March. But I, Texas Tech, too, I, I watch them and, and I want more. I, last week when we were doing this, I told you that Texas Tech-Kansas would probably be a game that I'd look forward to. But I just don't think Kansas would give them much of a game. And, and Kansas beat them outright. So I think, I, Kansas has been playing well. And I think Texas Tech has taken a little bit of a dip defensively. Yeah. And you talk about wanting to peak at the right time. If they're going to hit their dip, I'm glad it's now. Because knowing what we know about Chris Beard and how great of a coach he is, I think hitting this dip now, that these last couple regular season games, especially with a tough test against Texas, they start coming out of that dip. And that trajectory starts going up, up, up again, going into the Big 12 tournament and beyond. I think they hit their dip at a good time, and this is a good week to go ahead and get out of it. That was my, my main game I was looking at. But beyond that, Illinois at Wisconsin, a Wisconsin team that has kind of just clung to the top 25 the whole season. They yeah. got as high as the top 10. Maryland beat them when they were number five. They dipped out for a second. They're back in at 23. They're a pesky team, nine seniors in the rotation. Uh, at home against Illinois, Io DeSumo with facial fracture. Don't know exactly how much time he's going to miss. Hopefully he's back quick for a team that has final four aspirations. Looking at that game to see if Wisconsin can pad their resume a little bit. And then obviously the two big 10 games on Sunday. I was going to say big, big 10 games 
that would have sounded weird, but you get, you get what I mean. Uh, the Maryland game against Michigan State, we already touched on that with Worm. And then Iowa against Ohio State, two teams right now uh, that the perception around them has changed maybe a little bit after yesterday. Iowa got blitzed against Michigan. Um, we said last week that it's, it's Baylor, Gonzaga, and then Michigan in their own class and then everybody else. The gap between Baylor and Gonzaga and then Michigan is a lot smaller than the gap between Michigan and everybody else. Michigan can win the whole thing. Absolutely. So the perception around Iowa may be a little bit different after getting blitzed against Michigan, even though they're one of those top teams. Perception of Ohio State after their really hot streak, uh, you know, changed a little bit after losing last night to Michigan State. Two teams coming off of a loss. One of them is going to lose a second game in a row. Who is it going to be? So that's a game that I'm really looking at this week as well. And PJ, it's, it's that time of year. We're, we're getting down the stretch now where every single game is huge. Definitely. One more game, too, in the SEC, LSU at Arkansas. Maybe the second and third best teams in the SEC. Arkansas just had a big win against Alabama. They beat Missouri last week. They've won eight straight games in the SEC. LSU could really use one more big win. Mm-hmm. They should be in. But you win at Arkansas, and you are definitely a lock to make the NCAA tournament. Two great offensive teams, so I'm looking forward to seeing that game. The the last one I'll say, as far as teams that might be on upset alert this week, I'm looking at seven and eight for the upset alerts here. Uh, You look at Oklahoma at home against Oklahoma State. Oklahoma's seven. Oklahoma State's not ranked. Oklahoma State has been given teams fits. And Cade Cunningham playing the way he's playing. That's a game that I'm really looking forward to uh, on Saturday, 3 o'clock ABC. And the other one, Sunday, Butler home against Villanova. Butler is below 500 by, I think, five games. They just beat Seton Hall the other night, which is a big game for the bubble. Butler at home, tough. And they've, they've been dealing with some injuries. But the Big East, it's, it flies under the radar. But those teams beat up on each other every single night. Yeah. And it wouldn't shock me if Villanova turned in a, a less than stellar performance. I think Villanova wins. But Butler's going to keep that game a lot closer than people think. That's Look, every time Villanova plays, they know they're getting everybody's best shot. Uh, Joe, we've been giving each other our best shot at trivia. Yes. And uh, let's see. Are we tied We're up? 15-15. 15-15. We are indeed. Because we got uh, rid of the, the half-point half last week. I'll go first because it's sticking with the theme of really a majority of our show, college basketball. Um Real simple for you, Joe. If you can give me, let's see. So I have six written down of the longest NCAA tournament streaks currently still going. Um, the top five is is pretty easy, but then that sixth one's the tricky one. But if you can give me five of the six, I'll give it to you. Five of the six of the teams that have made the most consecutive, you mean? Correct. Most consecutive okay. tournaments, yes. All right. Um I'm going to start with active streaks, correct? Active, correct. Active yep. streaks. Yep. Um, I'm going to start with Duke. Duke, yep. They're second, okay. 24. Michigan State. Michigan State, yep. 22. Okay. Um, Number three. Villanova? Not Nova. Okay. They were seventh. Kansas is probably number one. They are. 30 straight. Okay, three. Now, Kentucky is in my mind. I, I want to say, though, that um, – in the middle of their run when they went to a couple of Final Fours, I think there was a down year where they went to the NIT. So I'm going to hold off on Kentucky until I absolutely have to. Um, I'm going to say Gonzaga. Yes. 
Gonzaga, four, 20 straight. So you just need one more, one of the two. They don't play enough talent where they would have missed (laughs) in a given year. There was one year it was close. They were like an 11 seed when mm-hmm. Kyle Wiltshire was there. That was their closest year, but they made it. All right. So um, 40 seconds left. You just need one more. You got two strikes to work with. North Carolina is the same thing for me, like Kentucky, where I'm not entirely sure. I think they might have had a down year. Uh, in the Pac-12, everybody out there has, has cycled through bad years. I don't think it could possibly be somebody in the Pac-12. Um, Big East, Nova was my only shot. It's a no for them. SEC outside of Kentucky I don't think there's one and then as far as just general at-large teams that are you got uh, 10 seconds left all right I'm gonna say Kentucky and UNC and hope it's one of the two you are correct it is UNC Kentucky was incorrect but she got the Tar Heels so they were the other team tied for fifth with UNC with nine consecutive was Cincinnati all those Mick Cronin teams that were good and then uh yeah, so they're not going to make it this year unless they win Wrinkle the break. AAC. But uh, but yeah, so well done. So you got sixteen. I know in that stretch there was there was like down years for both teams, and I'm glad I said it was I, like Calipari's first year at Kentucky. They they were terrible, and yeah. then they obviously got John Wall and Demarcus Cousins, and have not looked back until this season. All right, PJ, for you, you can go back and pick out teams on the lines they were on for like the last five NCAA tournaments if you looked at it. So right. I don't think this one's too, too hard for you. I got it. Like I said, whenever I try to give you a question, I try to do it first. In the last decade, we can. this is still a viable question because there was no 2020 tournament. Right. So in the last 10 tournaments from 2010 to 2019, I want you to give me seven of the 10 most outstanding players at the tournament. All right, it's 2010. Uh, Kemba. Uh, Kemba was 2011. Yep. Um, Anthony Davis. 2012. Um, Russ Smith. Uh, incorrect. Strike one. So I'll go Peyton Siva. Incorrect. Strike two. That's the one that surprised me and was one of my strikes when I was going through it. I was stunned at that one. Unbelievable. So I have two strikes already. Um, all right, let's see. Think more recent. Go go from back, yeah, to, Villan- back to early. I mean, those Villanova teams, the most outstanding players, like, is DiVincenzo. I'll go DiVincenzo. DiVincenzo's correct in 2018. You've got three. You need to get four more, and you are 35 seconds in. So the most outstanding player is the player of the game for the championship, or it's the entire tournament? Tournament. Tournament. Okay. Um, Let's see. So the other Nova title, that was the Chris Jenkins shot, but he wouldn't have won it. Um, North Carolina teams. Page. Oh, the North Carolina team that won it against Gonzaga. It might have been Justin Jackson. I'll go Justin Jackson. Justin Jackson was not the most outstanding player that year. It was Joel Berry the second. Oh, who was the other Villanova team? Who was that year? It was Ryan Archidiacono. Was Archie okay? And then the Duke teams, I would have said uh, Tyus Jones. Tyus Jones was correct. All right, and then um, let's see who Duke else. Was UConn wanted. Oh, Shabazz was the other. Shabazz one. was the other one. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But I the, wouldn't have got because Louisville tripped me up. Who's the year with Louisville? It was Luke Hancock on that team that got it. Wow. It was Luke Hancock. Going back, I got – when I was doing this, like I said, I got both Villanovas in Archidiacono and DiVincenzo because I thought they were the same player for the long – I was like – Right. Really <laughs> um, I did not get Joel Berry. I did not get Luke Hancock. I did not remember 2010 Kyle Singler, but I got Kemba mm-hmm. in 11, Anthony Davis in 12, Shabazz in 14, Tyus Jones in 15, both of the Nova guys, Joel Berry and Kyle Guy. Kyle Guy in 2019 for Virginia. Yeah. 
Yeah, see, and I might have said Hunter for Virginia. I don't Hunter know if was I good was too. Guy. I, I guy, I, I definitely think about that controversial game against Auburn. Down Auburn, the stretch. yeah, definitely. He, he was he was big down the stretch in a lot of those games. Well done. That was a good one. Yeah, Louisville. That I, the fact Never it's not Smith or Siva is is yeah. an upset. That's shocking. All right. Well, well done. Thanks again to Grant Paulson for joining us. Great to talk to him and join and uh, have him come on the pod. Thanks again to Ryan Warmly coming on for Toxic College Hoops. And Joe, next time we do this, not only is it March, but it'll be episode 40 as well. This will be March (laughs) and it will be episode 40. I cannot wait until February 28th at 11.59 p.m. Just waiting for those seconds to count down until midnight. And John Rothstein probably already. No, he will be ready to roll. Sweet. That's right. (laughs) All right, until next time, Joe Malfa, PJ Glasner. Catch us next week, episode 40 in March. Thank you.